You're listening to Ben and Bikes with your host, Ben Lockett. This podcast is about bikes, but more about the people who ride them and their stories, and less about frame size, shock technology, or even the Tour de France. This is Ben and Bikes, where every bike tells a story. The Ben and Bikes podcast is sponsored by Health IQ. Health IQ is an insurance agency that helps health-conscious people like cyclists get lower rates on their life insurance. Go to healthiq.com forward slash BAB to support this show and learn how your active lifestyle choices can reduce your life insurance premiums. The diva from Down Under is how Rafa describes today's guest. Tiffany Cromwell is one of the world's most accomplished female road riders having lived her stellar career racing in some of the most illustrious events on the pro cycling calendar. Stage wins at the Lotto Thuringen, uh, the Giro, uh, first in the Omloop, five national championship <coughs> podium finishes, a third in the Tour of New Zealand, to name but a few. Uh, currently racing for Team Canyon SRAM, she calls Adelaide, Australia her home, but spends most of her time uh, racing and training on the roads of Europe, which is where she's joining me from today. In the off-season, Tiffany likes to relax with running marathons, mountain bike racing, boxercise, and rowing. So, I dare you, tell Tiffany she runs like a girl. My guess is that she'd take it as a badge of honor and beat you to a pulp in whatever athletic and aerobic challenge you throw her way. Tiffany Cromwell, welcome to the Ben and Bikes podcast. Thanks for having me along. Uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, do you uh, do you have a problem keeping still? <laughs> yes. I'm not one of these people that um, is good at relaxing. I just, I'm full gas all the time, you know, always doing something. And yeah, <laughs> it takes a lot to wear me out, that's for sure. Uh, um, that sounds exactly right. Um, so Rafa on, uh, on their website just does define you in their profile of you as the diva from down <laughs> under. Uh, that's their words, not mine. So, uh, is that an accurate description? I guess, you know, it's even not in the sense that I'm high maintenance and, <coughs> sorry, and, um, like that kind of diva is more as a diva because of, you know, I'm someone and I like extravagant things, you know, I work hard as well, but I just appreciate all, all different things, I guess, um. But yeah, I guess you could say I'm a bit of a diva in certain aspects, but not the diva is like a singing diva where they just, <coughs> sorry, I've got a bit of a cough at the moment, where they have someone, you know, on there waiting on them hand and foot and, you know, de very demanding. Yes, there are, t there, there are very definitely two definitions of the word diva. Um, uh, you are most definitely uh, the good version, not the... Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to look for a, a good a good equivalent. Let's just say the Housewives of Beverly Hills or somewhere horrible like that. Yeah, exactly. Right. So um, where are you talking to us from today? I'm currently in the south of France at my training base in Europe. So I'm about 20K from Nice on the border of Monaco. Okay. And that is the Canyon SRAM training camp? No, no, no. This is my training base. So the team itself is based in Germany, in Leipzig. Okay. Um, and then we're required to live in Europe somewhere. So I found myself place lived down here about seven years ago and right. haven't left since. Right. So, yeah. Uh, how much time do you spend in the south of France compared to Australia? 
Oh, most of my time's over here. I mm. only spend two months a year back in Australia because the season runs from March through until September and then I might start November, December here and then go back to Australia, you know, when it gets too cold here. So I'd say my main place where I am most of the year when I'm not on the road racing right. is here in the south of France. Right. So I just want to be clear that uh, that your team, Canyon SRAM, said you needed to to live somewhere in Europe and you rather amazingly uh, found that the south of France was the best place to live, which I think uh, is probably one of the best choices you could have, could have made. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's just, it's not so much even just the team, it's a requirement. When you become into the European professional circuit, right. it's it's normal to be in Europe somewhere. And, you know, I spent some years in Italy with the Australian national team. When I left the national team, I went and lived a year in Spain and then... I then end up down around here um, because of a few reasons. And then, yeah, I never left. And yeah, you can tell there's a lot of other professionals based down here. Sure. Bike riders and other sports people. And, you yeah. know, there's a reason for it because it's a fantastic training location. Right. The weather's fairly good year round, you know, the proximity to the airport as well. Yeah. So it just, it just ticks all the boxes. Yeah. Yeah. And the food and wine isn't and bad either. That too. And it's a beautiful part of the world. <laughs> So, uh, you know, based on that, um, you know, you race and train in, in Europe for, for most of the time. It sounds idyllic and it probably is most of the time. But but my um, guess is the training's pretty, pretty tough. Um, can you can you can you talk us through what a, what a typical training day looks like for you? You know, there's no really typical training day, I guess you could say. Um, all the training is based, determined on, you know, what you're working towards. So you go through blocks you know, on average will be you wake up, have breakfast, and then you get on the bike. You know, I'll train anywhere from one hour, which is a recovery day, to five hours on a really long endurance day. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm doing a three to four hour ride, but it has a lot more intensity involved in there. Um, so, yeah, really we work very structured in terms of, you know, depending if it's your between races from week to week. So it might be only one hard day and then the rest are more about recovery mm-hmm. versus maybe a month away from racing. So then you'll do like, two to three days on, one day off, and build like that. Yep. And then after that, you know, some relaxing. Um, some days I'll go to the gym as well, do an hour of the strength training or core training just for maintenance. Um, and then, yeah, it's just fill my days with if I'm really tired, I might just not do anything, you know. Part of our job is to actually just relax and recover so you can train again well the next day. But then there's also normal living things that you have to do, like go to the supermarket or mm-hmm. maybe do some washing, clean up, um, make food. And then, yeah, the rest of the day is just up to me what I feel, whether I catch up with friends for coffee or, yeah. you know, I just see each day. But, yeah, that's generally a bit how it goes. And are you, are you, um, you know, self-directed on this training? Are you out on your own? Are you riding with a bunch of people? Are you riding with a coach? How, how, what does that look like? Again, it changes day to day. Um, mm-hmm. My coach is based in Australia, so all my training program is online. And these days with the bikes, we have power meters, which, you know, give a lot of data. So that feeds back to the coach. so They can see exactly what we've done. They can see the maps and everything else. Yep. And, but, you know, for us, it's it's not like a typical sports team where like you get a soccer or football team right. or whatever, where every day they have to beat the oval, they train together, everything else, day in, day out. For us, it's very, it's a lot of discipline. You know, it's up to you to get outside, to get on your bike, to do what you have to do. Um, and then it might be, I might, some days I just ride by myself because either there's no one else around to ride with or my routine is too specific. That's 
quite tricky to ride with others. Mm-hmm. Other days you need someone to get you out the door. So you might call a friend and say, hey, what are you up to? Let's go for a ride. Other days you might have a group of people who are messaging each other and say, yep, let's ride. So then you get a few. So it really changes. Yeah. And it's very different here versus where I'm in Australia. In Australia, I'd say bunch riding is a lot bigger. Like, you know that on a Saturday at my hometown, seven o'clock at the beach, there's a big bunch. It's a super hard session. It's one hour. You get it done and then you go do your extras. Like, but that's a very Australian cultural thing, I think, because nowhere else I've ever felt like we have all these things where it's like, you know, you know, there's a bunch ride. You can have a really good hit out and you can sort of work your training around that. Whereas here in Europe, it's much more, you know, you're talking direct with people and saying, yep, I'll meet you here. Yeah, um, I was going to ask you about the Australian culture and how it, how it fits uh, it fits into the European scene. Clearly, there have been a number of fantastic uh, writers coming out of Australia. Um, how how does that Aussie uh, philosophy? Let's leave it at that. Uh, how does that Aussie philosophy fit into the culture of of European professional uh, bike racing? I think it's different, 100%. You know, for Australians, it's a big commitment to get to Europe. Right. You know, it's you have to move to the other side of the world. You have to be away from family and friends. You have to adapt to different cultures, different languages, living in places that are completely different to Australia. You need to build a community. You need to try to have good people around you. Yeah. So once you get through those hurdles, yeah. that's a starting point. Yeah. Um, and then it's just about embracing it, you know. It's... And committing, but I think because of these factors, I'd say Australian athletes in general, on average, have probably got a quite tough mentality because they do know if everything goes bad and they're having a hard time, it's not as easy as jumping an hour on the plane and say for like the British to go back to the UK. Yeah. You know, it, it's if you want to go home, it's 24 hours of travel. So, <laughs> you know, a, a lot of time you push it out and get through those tough times yeah. and then you become stronger for it. So I'd say that's the biggest thing that makes us, and we're quite easy going in general as, as a culture. So it's like the combi- combination of knowing that you're coming over, you got to do it properly because you made such a big commitment right. to do the European thing. And then having that kind of, yeah, you know, your always mate type attitude to kind of adapt with if things all go disastrous, like you can't just go with the flow and work it out. Yeah, so you, your entire goal, therefore, is, is defined around helping Europeans and the rest of the world understand that putting a freaking shrimp on the barbie is not an Australian <laughs> cultural thing. And nobody, exactly. drink, and nobody drinks Foster's Lager over there either. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Taking a pause from the Ben and Bikes podcast for a couple of minutes for a message from People for Bikes. Every day, two dozen People for Bikes staffers go to work at our Colorado headquarters in the field, and in Washington, D.C. Our team focuses on making every bike ride safer, easier to access, and more fun. One way we do this is by monitoring all 50 state legislatures for bills related to bike riding and taking action to push them through or defeat them. Often what we find surprises us. Today's installment of surprising bike legislation comes to us from the great state of Iowa. In March 2018, legislators in Iowa turned an otherwise good bill into a bad deal for bike riders. They amended a proposal that would have made routine changes to the state's rules for bicycle operation by adding a high-visibility clothing requirement for riders on roads with speed limits of 45 miles per hour or faster. 
People for Bikes launched a grassroots campaign in partnership with the Iowa Bicycling Coalition that generated more than 1,000 letters to the statehouse. The bill was quickly brought to a halt. Neon clothing proposals are nothing new, but they are impractical and unproductive. Ultimately, they shift the burden of road safety to bike riders at a time when better infrastructure and careful driving are badly needed. To keep track of this bill and others like it in your hometown, join People for Bikes at peopleforbikes.org slash Ben. It's free and you won't regret it. And now back to the Ben and Bikes podcast. Uh, yeah, I, I spent uh, a number of years in London and, and too much, too many hours than I care to remember in the Southern Cross pub uh, in London. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's, uh, that's if, you, if, if anyone's listening, they go to London, they, you want a glimpse of Aussies on tour. Uh, that is <laughs> a, uh, that's a very good pub to go and, and experience that. And that. Did you happen to see, uh, Tiffany, that Qantas now flies a, a, a nonstop trip from Sydney to London? I have indeed. I don't know why people won't do that. <laughs> it's a very, very long flight. And I can't imagine it's good that you have that. But the thing is, if you're coming from the East Coast, you still have to stop. Like if you're going Melbourne, Sydney, you still have to stop in Perth and you get the long haul, right. which is no yeah. different to going Melbourne, Sydney to Dubai and stopping there and then continuing on in yeah. my eyes. Either way, it's a long If you're from Perth, it's great yeah. because it means one flight. But for anyone else, yeah. <laughs> yeah. E- either way, it's a, it's a long day in the sky. Exactly. Well, however, and I'm sure at the front front of the plane or upstairs, from what I have heard on the initial things, it's not a very comfort, it's not a very fun flight to do. Yeah, I, I hear you. So, um, for for many of our listeners, you know, their their exposure to professional uh, bike racing is, of course, the Tour de France. Um, we here in Colorado actually have for a number of years now had the um, Colorado uh, race. Uh, there's also uh, people over here will have seen uh, races on the. Um, Tour of California, Tour of Utah, and a number, a number of other things, which are certainly getting more coverage here. But the exposure to to bike racing here is is not what it is in Europe by any stretch. Uh, so, um, whilst I hope that we have listeners from all around the world uh, to this podcast, majority come from the U.S. So maybe uh, Tiffany, if you could paint a picture of what uh, a day's professional racing looks like so from the moment you wake up you know to the moment you go to bed what 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 does that look like um it's quite yeah from the early parts it's quite yeah nothing that exciting you so from the night before you get given the day schedule for the day so normally you'll attend a wake up whenever you choose depending on if it's an early start or a late start with the race so that will first be your starting point race starts at say 11 and then if you've got transfer you'll be there so we wake up Minimum so you can eat three hours, three hours before the, the race start. So you do that, you have your breakfast, maybe have some relaxed time, then you get into the team, cars, buses, campers, and then go to the race start. Normally they're hour to an hour and a half before. It's a lot of maybe you have another pre-race meeting or maybe a few other bits. It's a lot of waiting around, kind of pinning your numbers on, talking rubbish with your teammates, getting motivated for, for the race and knowing what your job is. And then all the last minute things like we'll get a little bit of oil in the legs sometimes to wake them up, um, get the food that you need in the pockets, and then it's to the start line or sign on and then the start line. Then there you race whatever the length is, anywhere from 100 to 150K or three to four hours of racing. Depends what type of race is. can be hard, can be easy, can be negative, can be stressful, can be 
wet, can be dry, you get through that, hopefully do your job, hopefully someone in the team ends up on the top of the podium, mm-hmm. you celebrate, you go back to the cars, change, debrief, go if it's a one-day race, you either go back to the hotel or maybe go direct to the airport if you're flying home that night. Or if it's a tour, for example, you go back to the hotel, then the recovery starts. It will be a little bit of relax, you shower, you'll have a massage, um, you do some stretching, you chill out. Everyone's different how they chill out. Uh, dinner, post-race meeting, then pre-race meeting for the next day. And, yeah, and that's then- pretty much how a day goes. <laughs> and then... You head straight up to your hotel room and just relax until it exactly. all starts again. Exactly. Either you know, talk to people on the phone if you want to talk to people, watch yep. bad TV series, <laughs> um, answer emails, do creative things. Like everyone's very individual in that aspect. Yeah. Aspect. You know, just you know, depends on what you prefer and everything else. Yeah. So I've done you know a number of century rides here and. Um, yeah, I'm sure people listening have done, you know, some form, many of them done some form of of long ride. Um, and, you know, I'll speak for myself when I say, you know, at the end of 100 miles, uh, I'm not spent, but I'm pretty darn close to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the idea of adding the race aspect to that, because all the rides I do are sort of cause races for bike MS and some of the other things. Um, and uh, but still, I'm tired you add racing to that um it it, it add, multiplies that by three or four times i would imagine um and just the idea of waking up and doing it all over again and again and again and again maybe a four-day race i can't even imagine the effort required on the tour given the three-week nature of of that event um but at the end of at the end of the race tiffany uh, how I, this is a, probably really hard to answer because it, it probably just depends. But you know, at the end of a race, you've put everything into it. How hard is it to get up in the morning and do that whole thing again? Yeah, some days it can be really, really challenging. Like on the longer races, you know, I'm still amazed with the men when they do the three week tours. Right. Our longest tour is ten days, right. and for me, like that's long enough. <laughs> you know, you get to the later days, you've had a really hard day, your legs are aching, everything's aching, and you know you just have to go and do it again and again and again. And like you say, you know, yeah, no, it's gonna hurt. And depending on what type of role you have, I'm sure, like if you're in the leader's position, it's even more stress. And yeah, but. It becomes mental towards the back end because at the end of the day, everyone's capable of it if they really want to. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, some people are tour riders and they actually get better as the tour goes on. Me, I much more prefer one-day racing because I love to just go out there, give everything on the day, kill myself and then, you know, can enjoy an easy day the next day. But, yeah, for for me, it's – the mental side is what gets it and, you know, sometimes yep. you just get onto robot mode and you just say, okay, you got to do what I got to do, go out there, do everything, blah, 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 and then it's fine. But, you know, there's days when you're just, you're just like, please, please let me get through this and hope for the best and I'm going to really enjoy the recovery once it's done. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's the case. Um, do you do you have a guilty pleasure? In other words, when you're riding and you're like, I can't do this anymore, but I'm going to have a, when I finish, what, what is that for you? I got a couple of things. I do love a white Magnum when I'm usually <laughs> traveling or like having to go through a gas station or something like that. Right. Then 
white Magnum or there's chocolate out of, I think it's German chocolate. It's called Rita Sport. Mm. One of those blocks are pretty good as well. But, yeah, anything that's bad for you, like ice cream, chocolate, pizza to a less extent, and that usually satisfies. It's like, yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> I got the got the rubbish, feel sick after it if I have too much of it, and then be like, okay, happy days. Sure. So, I mean, the calorific intake, I mean, I just can't believe that you can intake enough calories to cover the deficit of output of calories when you're one of those races. You know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. You're always focused on your, on your nutrition. Right. For sure, sometimes it's very hard to get the balance, but it's one thing you're always looking at. You're going from, okay, you wake up in the breakfast, make sure you have enough to get you going. And then after that, you then say, okay, <coughs> I'm going to go um, in the race. It's like, okay, you're focusing to eat every 30 minutes. <coughs> Sorry. You're right. And then, you know, so that's trying to keep on top of it, on top of it, on top of it, straight away after the race, just straight having your protein shake, having some food as well yeah. and everything else. And then, you know, so it's always it's always in the back of your mind. Then at dinner as well, then you're eating, eating, eating. Yeah. So I feel like you do get enough to be able to keep going but for sure you're at a small deficit by the end but if you ever try to restrict yourself or try to be on a diet at a tour yeah. then then you know that's when you're going to be into trouble hey there podcast listener we'll be right back to the show so please don't touch that dial it's time you got a reward for sweating up that hill on your bike and we're very excited to tell you about a company called health iq who kindly sponsor the ben and bikes podcast Health IQ's customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance because physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes compared to people who are inactive. Bottom line, you invest in a healthy lifestyle, and that investment should mean that life insurance is cheaper. See if you qualify by visiting healthiq.com forward slash B-A-B, and take the health IQ test. And now back to the podcast. So most uh, most cyclists, I, I believe, at their pro level, you know, would categorize themselves as a, as a climber, as a, as a sprinter, or, or some other category like that. What, what category would you put yourself into? Um, I like to call myself a bit of an all-rounder. Um, it's funny, I've changed a lot as a rider from when I started versus where I am now. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was younger, I was very much just a climber and couldn't do much else. And often, you know, a domestique as well. Um, whereas now I developed a lot more of my power. So for me, it's like those classics. For me, I like to think of myself as a classic rider, a bit of a ruler. You know, when I get a chance, I take an opportunity and I go for it. But also over the last couple of years, I really developed my sprint. So then I can be punching crafty. I wouldn't say I'm an out and out bunch sprinter by any means, but I can be crafty if it's a technical finish and <coughs> it requires being, you know, a little bit skillful. So I guess that's me to, you know, explain the type of rider that I am. I'm also probably because I've been around the traps for quite a while, I'm quite knowledgeable. So it's often looked at to be a captain for the team as well. So making mm-hmm. the tactical choices on the road and everything else. For those of us who don't understand the concept of the really important domestic position, can you explain that? So domestic is basically it's your helper. Every winner 
will not have won without domestique. So they're the people that you'll see riding at the front of the race, in the tour, keeping your person out of the wind. If they need food, if they need drinks, they're going back to the cars, they're taking jackets, they're getting jackets. They're basically being their bodyguard. That's the best way to say a domestique. So you can keep your protected rider as protected for as long as possible without having to do any work possible for as late as possible to, yeah, that's the job of a domestique. Got it. And, and one other thing that I've always been been fascinated about, which is the idea of, of the tactician that, that you mentioned. So um, some people may just assume that, you know, it's just a bike race and, and the fastest person finishes first, right? Um, but there is an awful lot mm-hmm. more to it than that. So when you are saying that, you you know, you're, you're a tactician, what, what's going through your mind and, and, and how do you actually execute on that piece of the race? So it's it's a pretty tough role, um, to be honest, because basically you're the one that it's your responsibility to make a decision. Tough. Sometimes it's very tough, you know, where, say, you have your plan set out with the team, this is what we're going to do. Then something happens, either you're not in the position where you want to be as a team, like a breakaway's gone, someone's gone that shouldn't be there, your team misses a move, then suddenly it's like, okay, we're not in a place where we can win the bike race. How do we change this? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you might have to make some difficult decisions to say, no, you need to do this. Like you need to be really strong to say X person needs to go chase that down because we need to get this back together like pronto. So it's kind of like looking at everything, kind of watching what's going on within the race, knowing what's coming up, knowing the courses. Like there's various elements that can make a big difference, say when it's really windy, Um you know certain times if it's going to turn, it's a time to get the team together straight away before that corner. So then when you're in the corner, you can then put the pressure onto the other teams. So it's all about trying to be ahead of the race when everything's happening and um, just being able to direct the team the best you can, making the hard calls and hopefully then directing it to, to a win because also you can have some very strong rise in the team that may not be able to read these situations, but they need someone to guide them, particularly when you get younger riders. So that's where someone with a bit more experience who knows a bit more about tactics and the knowledge and everything else can help them as well, you know, stay calm and relaxed. Yeah. Have you typically pre-ridden every course before you race it? No. Very important races, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, like these one-day races, the classics, like, you know, Flanders, for example, Stradwianka, um, those types of races where it's really critical to know certain sections for maybe if you're a team targeting one of the grand tours, like for us in the women, the Giro d'Italia, yeah. then if you're someone that wants to target that, maybe you'll go and see some of the critical stages. So, you know, a climb, you'll know all these little bits and pieces, but these days with technology, there's so much that you can find out the information that you're quite, you know, a lot what's coming up and also summer races are the same from year to year. So, if you've done them enough, you'll know what's coming up and you don't really need to go go ride them. You'll only be, as we say, certain sections. It might be finales. But at the end of the day, yeah, it really depends on the race because yep. you don't want to be riding every course, going out there a few days early to do this because for me personally, like time at home is critical and like every type, extra day at home counts. So if you can come into a race later, you can do your preparation perfectly as you want with your control, your training grounds, your eating, your sleeping, your own bed, everything else. Come to the race fresh and you're not going to be already mentally fatigued being in a hotel for 
five days versus three days, for example. Totally. Yeah, I get that. As someone who travels a fair amount, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm. Uh, so um, this season is uh, just, just kicking off. Uh, what uh, what races uh, do you see uh, this year for, for you? Well, we've already had the first bulk of the races. Between that and we just finished the Spring Classic. So for me personally, you know, there's a few um, races that I want to be good in. Things like that on the Pet Newsblad, um, Shad Bianca, these like really good, beautiful classics. But for me personally, as an Australian athlete, we have the Commonwealth Games coming up in two weeks' time. Yeah. Well, actually, it starts next week, but our race is in two weeks' time, right. or now just under. And for me, that's been a big target, you know, was to make selection firstly, which was done in January. And then obviously, I've been selected and, you know, I'll be going there in a support role for a teammate. But, you know, it's a big goal to perform well there and to help the team win gold. So, that's my short-term focus for now. And then I'll come back to Europe and then it will be um, Tour of Britain and Tour of Yorkshire, two races in the UK. There's a couple, you know, I'd love to target them for stage stage victories. Mm-hmm. And then we have the Giro d'Italia, as I mentioned, where we our team is going for the overall. So, you know, I'll be there definitely in a support role. But then towards later in the year, there's always like one or two one-day races I'll look at, like GP Pluet. But, you know, yeah, it's sort of, it's nice because it's like when you know you're not targeting a race but then you're helping your teammate win. It's also such a nice feeling. And then I'm also focusing on on these other races, you know, to be back on top in a World Tour podium or a World Tour race. That's kind of the goal by the end of the year. Yep. So, um, so as with many sports, uh, there is sadly a huge chasm between how men and women are treated terms of media coverage, sponsorships, compensation, etc. Uh, there appears to be, have been a bit of a tipping point of late, and that chasm, while still pretty wide, appears to be shrinking somewhat. Uh, doing things, as I mentioned at the beginning, like a girl means something totally different today than it did 10 years ago. Um, but what are you seeing in terms of uh, women's sports on the... Uh, on the cycling scene and, and, and kind of what are you doing to help change change that perception of female athletes? Yeah, things are changing big time at the moment. It's really exciting to see, you know, more and more races are getting some coverage and more and more conversation is being spoken about the sport. More and more races are stepping up and, you know, increasing the professionalism and the the base levels of, of the races. So, um so that's been really great. And obviously, some countries are doing it a lot better than others. You know, I'd say Great Britain has been leaders globally in it. You know, yeah. all their races have come in really strongly, support them well, offered equal prize money, television coverage, and, you know, to prove they've had races that can be successful on their own merit and not on the side of a men's race. Um, but then, And also Australia as well has done that, you know, with obviously Tour Down Under, they're really, really stepping up and saying we want to support the women's race, we want to grow it year in, year out. Um, I think, you know, it's just it's a general conversation that keeps getting spoken and the more we speak about it, the more the more interest there is, the more exposure there is and the more people listening and changing. And obviously I want to do my part to just see it as an athlete side and, you know, express what's good but also express what still you know needs to improve because you know there's there are still some areas that could be better um but it's good that it's moving in a in the direction we want to head like you know an upward direction and yep. not taking any steps backwards yep i agree with that 
wholeheartedly. So, um, so you've done uh, the Tour Down Under a number of times. Um, you've done, an, obviously, a number of European races. Uh, are we going to see you here in the U.S. at some point? I will tell you that Richie Port raced in the Colorado Classic a few years ago. Uh, and, and obviously, there's great coverage. Tour of Utah, Tour of California. They all have women's races. Uh, when, when are we going to see you over here in the U.S., Tiffany? Yeah, it's fantastic. Obviously, US has a fantastic scene. Um, it's great that, you know, these races like Tour of Utah and Tour of Colorado are having women's races. It's just a shame that they're not UCI level yet. So mm-hmm. for teams like us in Europe, it's it's a big financial side to come over. So team as yet isn't coming out, but, you know, the team will be left to California, which is fantastic. Unfortunately, I won't be there this year. It's not on my program, but, you know, the US... I always loved to be over there racing because I started my international career over there. Oh, you did? You know, I raced, yeah, 2008, 2009, I raced with the US-based team. Where, where was Sutter that? Homes. Yeah, who was that? Where were you based? Colavita Sutter Home team. Mm. Um, yeah, I was based out of Colorado, actually, oh. Boulder. Yeah. I spent some time living in Cal- uh, California, too. So, you know, that was, I was very young then, but it was, for me, it was set me up. It was a great platform, you know, to where I am now. I learned so much and... And yeah, mm. um, and you know, I've done to California a number of times, I've done Philadelphia a number of times, and yeah, unfortunately, this year I have nothing on the program for the US, but you know, I do love to come out there and train, particularly in Colorado for attitude training. I have a yeah. lot of great friends there, and also New York is a favorite place of mine, not so much for training, but just you know, for coming over to the US because <laughs> again, I have a lot of great friends out there, and so I try to get the trips over. It's just you know, we see bit by bit, we see. Yeah, so at this stage, I don't have a flight, but maybe maybe later in the year, I'll get over there for some training. You never know. Yeah, I'm I'm in Colorado, so um, I uh, know I know the People's Republic of Boulder pretty well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, great place. It is a great. I I love Boulder. Um, Yeah, and and you're you're right. Colorado is just a fantastic place to ride a bike. So yeah, uh, I was just spent some time training up at Snowmass as well, up a bit higher, and you know, all through that valley there, it's just. Again, For me, Colorado is a happy place. Yeah, it is I a happy place. And, just, and you've picked you've picked Boulder and Aspen as two happy places <laughs> yeah. to be. So. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. Although when I lived in Boulder, it's quite different to what it is now. I think, you know, it's got a bit more tech world now, but it's still, you know, it's still Oh, it's still place. Boulder. Don't worry. You, you're yeah. not, it has, it's still Boulder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, good. Um, so, um, Tiffany, um, thank you uh, very much for your time. I do have some quick kind of quick fire questions for you with you know, as, as quick a responses as you can muster on, on your end. Uh, right. So who taught you to ride a bike? When I was really young, it would have been my dad. Mm. Uh, and were you in Adelaide at that point? Yes. Okay. And do you remember what that bike was? That's going back a bit. It was a, it was a tricycle for sure. Um, well, I had the training wheels on. Yeah. I want to say it's something like a Malvin Star or one of these, which I think that's an Australian brand bike. Nobody outside Australia really knows them, but right. one of these small little, you know, toy shop bikes. Okay, or, got it. Yeah. Um, and how did you get from your tricycle and your dad um, pushing or your, your bike with training wheels and your dad getting you on your first ride, um, how did you actually get into professional cycling? Well, that's a completely different story itself. You know, I um, I came to the Town ID program, so it wasn't so much my parents got me into the sport of cycling. It was more when your kids, you normally roam around on bikes on the street 
or go to school, this or that. But, you know, I was playing basketball and that was very much within the family. But, um, yeah, then I got identified at school through um, fitness tests, said, hey, we think you'd be good at cycling. Why don't you come have a go? I was like, okay. And then, yeah. And went to the velodrome. Who who picked you out, though? Was it a national program that picked you out or was it a local or what was that? So it was the umbrella was the top of a national program. But Uh then so we have the sports institutes, the Australian Institute of Sport, then each state has their own institute. So then it filtered down. So each state managed it. So the South Australian Sports Institute, you know, they'll come to schools or you just do a generic fitness test, like a shuttle run, a big sprint, a jump. And they literally look at. If you can jump higher than so far high or if you can, you're taller than so high or, you know, these very small variables, then they could say we can put you into, into you know, this sport. And so there was a range of sports at the time and obviously so it was all government funded and wow. and supported. And then, yeah, went out to the Superdrome and they're like, yep, hey, we think you'd be good at, at this race. Uh, uh, sorry, at this sport, did, went to the lab, did a VO2 max test and then from there, yeah, <laughs> welcome. Right. You're, cool. Here's an opportunity with a group of other kids with the same opportunity. Yep. Take it as you wish. And they taught us the basic skills. You know, studying on the velodrome as well, like it's a more controlled environment. So you learned a lot of basic skills and everything else. And, yeah. Hmm. So you have the Australian government to, to blame for the pain that you suffer on a regular basis uh, as you race in these races. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Normally at this point I ask you what bikes do you own, but I'm assuming that most of them are Canyon and they have SRAM components. Well, funny you say, it's like I don't actually own many bikes at all because, yes, we we race Canyon bikes with SRAM yep. componentry. I have a road bike, time trial bike, and a mountain bike. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> it's funny because we never actually own them because they're owned by the team. But sure. I do have actually my own fixed wheel bike that stays in my apartment and it's like one, it was a collaboration diesel clothing brand. It's yeah. quite cool, but you know, it's more for looks than anything. But. Yeah, I was going to say, when you come back to, to Colorado, uh, bring your fixie because it'll look right <laughs> in place in Boulder. There's plenty of yeah, them around. For sure. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, okay, uh, this is going to be an interesting one. Uh, how many miles uh, did you ride last year? Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember, but I can find that I can do it in kilometers. Okay. I th- I reckon it was about. Let's find out. Are you looking on Strava or something way more sophisticated? I'm looking at my training peaks. Uh-huh. It was so let's say last 365 days. Yeah. Around yeah, it was about 20, 23,000 kilometers. Again, this may be a hard question to ask. What's the best ride that you've ever been on? That's a really tricky yeah, one. Yeah, it is a tricky one. It's, you're, you're a unique person that most people yeah. I speak to have like their one gold standard, but um, it doesn't have to be a race, you know, you know something for fun some, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I've been on some pretty amazing, amazing rides. Say one that was definitely a wow every single moment was I was out in Japan one time riding around the Hakone area with some lovely Japanese locals. They took me on this ride and it was the autumn time, mm. so or fall, so when all the – the colours of the leaves were changing and literally it was incredible, so beautiful. Just I think it's just the nature there, the serenity. You had crystal clear views of Mount Fuji and I think it's just something quite unique and different. That was something that's always, you know, remembered. Something stuck in my memory is a beautiful ride. 
Uh, okay, uh, Tiffany Cromwell, um, thank you very much for your time um, today. Um, very much uh, appreciated talking to you. Best of luck uh, with all the races that you uh, that you have this season. Um, and um, we wish you uh, a, a great rest of the day and a great rest of the year. Thanks for being on. Thanks very much and thanks for having me. Not at all. Uh, we'll see you soon. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the Ben and Bikes podcast. You'll find this and many other episodes about athletes, authors, filmmakers, and community organizers, all with a story to tell about bikes by visiting benandbikes.com. Thank you for listening. We'd sure appreciate it if you could rate and review the Ben and Bikes podcast wherever you listen. We appreciate your support and thanks for helping us connect with other bike enthusiasts. If you have a bike story to tell, email us, ben at benandbikes.com.